What is up, Asymmetry? How y'all doing? You know, it's so fascinating to do this podcast and, and learn from the conversations that we have. This one is far from complete, uh, but a wonderful beginning to starting to dissect and understand uh, a lot of the threads and nuances that run through Mariah's work and uh, the influence that we've experienced from Nick Lenz and Dan Robinson and, and David Kress and these wonderful individuals. So sit back, relax, enjoy the first of many. I draw a lot of inspiration from your work, David. I, I really enjoy your bonsai and your approach to bonsai a lot. That's awesome. It is awesome. You've been you've been to Mariah <laughs> one time. You came to the Artisans Cup, and and I know uh, yep. uh, we were fortunate to host you at Mariah. But um, yeah, I look at your larch work. I think it's the I think it's the reference point to what a larch looks like in the natural environment, being represented in the miniaturized form. I mean, h- how did this whole journey of bonsai start for you? Ah. <sighs> God, it was when I, I'm 62 now, I think. And uh, when I was in my early 20s, I worked at an arboretum while I went to school. And uh, he had an ABS journal laying around and uh, my boss, and he knew about bonsai. And and, uh, I read an article by Nick Lenz about uh, apples. Hmm. And... I started to read all these other articles and they all were really lame except for that one. And it was fascinating. So I ended up writing a letter to him off of the back of the ABS journal. He had, there was his, his uh, address on the ABS journal and we started corresponding and that's how it began. This is the, the corresponding with Nick Lins. This is so Nick Lins was the beginning of your bonsai. That was like the, that's how this all started yeah. for you? What year was that? Yeah. In the early 80s. What arboretum are we talking about? Where were you? Where did you grow up? I, I worked at a, a crappy little arboretum in my hometown where I live in Brainerd, Minnesota. So they had a dump that gave away some land and they decided to try to build an arboretum on this land. And it was jack pine dust and sand and and uh a dump and it didn't make a very good arboretum but i got to hang out with this old dude that was a plantsman and he didn't really have any bonsai or anything but he knew about bonsai he was always digging things up and said well this will make good bonsai maybe let's rip this off and we were always digging things up and I was just his helper. And, uh, that's what first exposed me to it. But then later I, I wrote to Nick and eventually he says, well, you need to come out here. I said, I, I actually told him, I said, I decided this is what I want to do for a living. And he, and, uh, we went back and forth on that. And he says, well, you need to come out and see me and see how an artist does it. And then I'll send you down to Chase's and you can see how a business person does it. And uh, then you can decide and we'll, we'll tell you some advice on the way. We talked about Japan a little bit, but I had kids and a wife and 
And he, he says, oh, you'll just get stuck sweeping under their benches for th- for years and never be able to do anything anyway. Mm. So that was never encouraged. But after I went out and I got in my car and somehow made the arrangements and went out and saw him and spent time a couple weeks out there and saw what he was doing and was flabbergasted. Mm. And uh, on the way out, I stopped in uh, Buffalo, New York, and somehow found uh, Bill's place. I'm lost, and <laughs> I've <laughs> never driven out of Minnesota. Sure. But uh, then I looked at that, but I, I was really kind of flabbergasted by what Nick was doing and how he approached it and how he talked about it and how he felt about it. And, and, uh, so that started a lifelong friendship. Yeah. And, but, but of course, over the course of the next year, while we went back and forth on this, I decided that I would continue doing what I was doing because there was no, I didn't think, unlike someone like you that, <laughs> that just gives everything, um, I said, oh, this is not going to work because I had two kids and, you know, the whole name, you know, I just didn't decide to do it. Mm-hmm. And well, I would have had to move, I guess, would have been the first thing because North Central Minnesota is not a hub for anything but bars and banks and and things like that. Not artsy at all. Right. So I'm still here after all the year, all the years. And what we ended up spending more time collecting together than anything he he really wasn't i don't think i ever i maybe i went to one of his workshops because i happened to be there but they weren't really workshops he would just work with his students that you know i didn't know and then we would leave and go go places was was he was 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 nick a teacher i mean did he actually you know, educate in these workshops and his students? Like, how did that work? How did you, because I guess when I look at Nick's work, you know, it's like he was doing, he was doing something very out of the box and artistic with bonsai before people had even thought about bonsai as an art form. And so, and, yeah, and, and exactly your work really, I mean, I think to President Hoover and the Artisans Cup, the most out-of-the-box display, certainly, and also the piece that I think stimulated the most conversation. It was a breakthrough moment for me because I had seen Nick's work before I had, you know, and I had, I think, a very superficial, I mean, Bonsai in the Wild. I, I had that book when I was, you know, 14 years old, and it, and it sort of prompted me to start collecting. But, it, but his out-of-the-box work you know, as a young bonsai practitioner, it was hard for me to understand. It wasn't until I saw the response to your piece in the Artisan's Cup where I was like, oh, wow, this is bonsai that's not accepted. This is bonsai that uh, stimulates conversation and thought and contextually represents something different. In particular, Dave DeGroote's audio critique of your composition right. really opened the door for me. That was the moment where it was like, aha, there's more to this. There is so much more to this. Um, so, you know, so coming back to the question with that context of like, did Nick teach? Was he was he handling it like a painter's studio? Was he handling it like a bonsai workshop teaching technique? Was, was it none of that? I'm just trying to get an impression of what built your sort of reference 
Right. Well, <laughs> like, well, when I did see him teach, he would, it wasn't anything amazing. He didn't teach technique. Um, he felt that people should figure out the craftsmanship. It's not that complex. He just, it's intuitive for him. So he was hindered in some ways in how he taught because it, you know, he was living in within his own myopic world and, and he was exposed to uh, obviously a lot of bonsai people that were traditionalists, but um, when, when he dealt with his students, he would always focus on design. So he'd look at, he'd walk around and look at whatever they had. And he was, especially if it was something exciting, then he would sit down and, and analyze the tree. And oftentimes he wouldn't cut, he'd tell you to cut or something like that. But he was always fixed on his design. There wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a conversation mm. in many cases because he just saw it and was impossible to get out of his head. Of course, he was usually right, but um, it, it's different than maybe what I've, what little teaching I've seen um, where it focuses more on technique and things like that. But there is plenty of you guys out there that, you know, you get your hands on material and you want to do stuff to it because you see something exciting. He was that way for sure. And, uh, but if, you know, if you read his book, he, he has the long view as well. You know, do this, do that, put it in the ground for 10 years, do this, you know, be patient. Yeah. <laughs> And, and he was writing that stuff, like you said, long before it was a thing, you know, long before you were on the scene, you know, and people really doing American bonsai, or I shouldn't even say American colloquial, where they're referencing their actual surroundings rather than referencing the surroundings of a remote idea. Mm -hmm. And that's what most people do. Yeah, um, I, I was really moved. But and, you know that. Yeah, well, I mean, I th I think all of this is a is a perpetual state of growth or, you know, the ebb and flow of potentially trend and perspective. Certainly certainly Walter Paul when I was in college, you know, and and evolving in my sense of bonsai, Walter Paul uh, and Nick Linz and Dan Robinson were kind of the three people that I saw images of whose work was really bucking the trend. And, you know, I hung out with Harold Sasaki and spent a lot of time with him learning to collect. I knew it was in the Rockies and I knew what the potential for bonsai was as a, as a different representation than the traditional model. But I felt like I think Nick's work of all of the of all of the sort of innovators at that time that were influencing me had a high degree of definition. Uh, you know, you could see the shape in his tree as you could in a traditional Japanese tree. It just didn't look like a traditional Japanese tree. Um, and it was very yeah. obvious that he was intentionally That's making design decisions at a level of craft and capacity that was similar to Japanese bonsai. It just had such a different aesthetic representation. And I felt that was super moving and he has not been recognized for that. I don't think. Yeah, I don't, I suppose, 
but that specific thing, the, the, the focus that he had on line design that, uh, you know, the subject that you're talking about, it's hard for me to put words to it, but it was very clear where they're, they're very stylized in many ways, mm-hmm. yet they're naturalistic. And he would always encourage people to do not to be over stylized, but some of his works were, they're more like plant art than they were bonsai and they were stylized in very odd ways, but his regular style bonsai, even the line is so clear, especially when you start, as you've looked, I'm sure you've become aware, you start taking pictures of trees. It reveals all kinds of strange things that might be, it might look great in person, but you photograph it and it has all these faults. And when he would photograph his trees, it was very you know, the, you could see the line very clearly that he was shooting for. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I found it. I mean, I found his work to be incredibly appealing. It was just like, gosh, who's this guy? You know, and I, I'd grown up in Colorado, and then I went to school in California, and then it's like, you know, I did have the dream to, to gain... For me, the technical limitation was going to be a complete impediment to being able to explore any degree of design. I mean, that's really going to Japan. Like I just, I wanted to know how to apply raffia properly. I wanted to know how to clean a live vein. I wanted, I wanted to understand things that, you know, were hard to get answers for, uh, at at that time. But, but Nick was, was already figuring that out. And it was like, oh, this is awesome. So he was always in the back of my mind, you know, and, and, um, Again, seeing your work in the Artisans Cup, your, yours and my first interaction in North America was at a workshop at, at Dale and Sue's in, in uh, Minnesota. Yeah. And I saw your eastern red cedar, which I had never seen a, um, you know, a juniperus virginiana of that caliber or quality ever. And I was just right. like, wow. And then I was sort of aware of your work. You know, and there are parallels to in <clears throat> in terms of sort of that really far degree of out-of-the-box contextual representation through the medium of bonsai. I mean, bonsai is now the medium that you're creating art with, but like, you obviously have your own ideas. There's some influence from Nick Lenz, it would appear, and what you're saying is like, you seems like you were influenced by him, but how do you separate your own work from <laughs> yeah. Nick's work, and like, what does that look like for you? Yeah. Well, I obviously was, I spent time in his garden and it just be like spending time in your garden. You spend enough time there. It expands your mind because you're doing phenomenal things. So same thing. I would spend time there and that, that had a huge influence on me and also his spirit because you deal with plant matter enough and, and especially in by yourself you're going to have things that are strange, maybe not even usable, you know, and, and, and all it takes is he, he was a notorious prankster. I mean, his whole life, he would do the crazy, some crazy things or great stories that shared at his uh, memorial service by all the different students and relative, all the people were telling these stories about the <laughs> most phenomenal things. But, uh, playful and fun. So he would get something and he would look at it in a playful way and go, Oh, this would be neat to do this way, even so it might be preposterous or strange. And, but it was fun. And then they'd stick around because 
they would live and, and he would enjoy them. Mm-hmm. And then he would, you know, I ended up getting a bunch of those pieces myself because who else is he going to give them to that appreciates them? So, right. Right. Uh, so that, so I have a few to take care of now. So you, so you're at this Arboretum, you see this ABS magazine, Nick Lenz's address is on mm-hmm. the back. You enjoy the article, you write him, you start spending time with him. What is happening in your life? you know, over this period of time as you're being influenced by developing and, and, you know, the, the, the bones I bug, you've got it, but, but you also had a wife, you had two kids. Um, I mean, like what's happening over this period of time as you're evolving your bones, I approach. Well, probably the most remarkable thing, uh, is I was in isolation. There was no other bonsai people, um, that were available to me. And, and the people that are like Dale and Sue and those folks were in Minneapolis, St. Paul, three hours away. Um, and I was working in construction. I was working with my hands. And, and uh, so I did it for myself, by myself. And then I would get the fixes of going able to go to Wyoming or collecting with Nick or go to Quebec you know, Northern Quebec and go collecting with Nick or go to the Bighorns. So those were big fixes and they were expensive for me, you know, to do. It was hard. And, uh, but, but so, so that all, all the other bonsai stuff was uh, in isolation. There was, there's no one here to water my trees or anything. Mm -hmm. My wife waters my trees, but uh, if I'm gone, but that, that was the difference. So I was able to slowly over time um, kind of develop my own thing. But there's an awful lot of losses on the way because in isolation, when things go wrong, there's no one to collude with. And it's kind of hard to collude with somebody writing letters back and forth yeah. because there was no email or anything right. for a long time. And then after a while, there was, but so there'd be losses minnesota northern minnesota is not the it's not the pacific northwest or new england it it's not so many things can go wrong and the climate is not conducive to to having plants outside i mean if it's late springs and nasty long winters and vermin really thick vermin everywhere and the winters will eat everything if you're not careful. Jeez. <laughs> so those kind of things <laughs> make you discouraged. I mean, a lot of it is just like, I don't know how I could, the discouragement of it all sometimes would get to me. You know, disease or things like that would drive me crazy. Yeah. The horticulture part was the most, the part I wanted to learn the most about, the design and all that stuff. Um how to do things that seems even so it's important it seems like a lot less important than than keeping them alive and learning how to use health um as a way of preserving the trees long term because a lot of what i was taught or absorbed was really restraining trees you know and really growing them weekly mm-hmm. and uh Nick did. Nick would grow things very. He wouldn't be very careful not to over invigorate trees. Um, in most species, like larch, he would grow them very 
cautiously and not fertilize till late in the season, things like that. Wow. Which, which is, which can work, but it has its disadvantages. I wouldn't work in the Pacific Northwest because they grow like rhubarb there. You got it made. Everything grows like <laughs> rhubarb there. I So it's controlling them. I've controlling a large, but this is like, yeah, but this is like, uh, the grass is always greener kind of a vibe because thing, everything grows, everything grows like that here, you know, and I got to echo what you're saying. The horticulture of bonsai is a nightmare. It's a total nightmare. It is. I, uh, I, I, I really still ask myself to this day, you know, did Mr. Kramer, was Mr. Kramer that good at horticulture or or, or, you know, is the environment there just different? Or, um, you know, was dealing with an established bonsai culture and established bonsai trees far easier than dealing with Yamadori? Because, I mean, you and Nick are collecting, you're dealing with the Yamadori narrative arc as well. And I don't think that that was ever a part of the literature, you know, in reading the romantic tales of Japanese collectors or European collectors, nobody ever talked about the 10, 15, 20-year narrative arc of a piece of Yamadori. It's a, it, it's a challenge. It's a super challenge. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we, we still, we're still focused on the horticulture of it. Um, but yes, larch do grow well for us here. No doubt, no doubt <laughs> about it. No doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yes, indeed. So you're... you're in construction and you're and you're getting to go collect with Nick it sounds like you guys went pretty far and wide you were experiencing the native landscape in a variety of different locations yeah he's all about you're going through these things too you're as you expose yourself to these different places and get to enjoy them but you take them in and it influences you so when Nick would go to these things, he was always telling me to just look around and absorb what there is in right. a spiritual way. Yeah, and he he was always yelling at me to quit quit feeling up everything. <laughs> <laughs> and and that that's at the memorial. That's what I that was my story is because that's what I remember the most is he would yell at crust quit feeling up every goddamn tree and look around at this beautiful place and uh because you know might never be back you yeah know? yes and so many people can never do that they can never take the time to to climb up into some of these very strange places that are so private or even in a bog i mean how many people have been in those elfin landscapes or even understand the amazement of a, a sphagnum bog it's just it's a, it's a rare thing I and mean, people don't slog around in those things for very often well it's not but the most that was they're not the most pleasant <laughs> you know they're not the most pleasant yeah. they're not the most inviting locations it's you don't go no. to a elfin sphagnum bog because it's uh light entertainment you know and i think that's i think that's a real separating factor when when i look at Again, when I look at Walter Paul and I and I look at Dan Robinson and I from what you're describing, Nick Lenz, and your explorations as it's like, no, that feels about right. These are unique individuals that are interacting with the landscape in different ways. They're looking at it differently. They want to know it differently. They're meeting it 
and and sort of in, digesting it differently. And that's that's exactly mm-hmm. that's re- it's really become over the course of time doing bonsai. I'm closer to the natural environment now than I ever was as a kid growing up in the middle of the Rockies, for sure. That's what like that's that. the gift bonsai is given. So do you still collect? Do you still go out yeah. and do these things? Do you still go out to these far-flung places? Well, I collected this spring. Nice. So, yeah. I'm, I, I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't pursue... I guess I reached a point where I thought it would be wise not to pursue collecting trees out of my own biome. Um, like going out west because it they feel funny to me now i have a couple ponderosa pine you know i have some things but um there are things that i collected that kind of have history and i i they're i'm affectionate to them but in a funny way they don't belong here you know i'm not i'm not in the mountains i'm in minnesota and the the trees that exist here surely do better here. So the large trees, you know, tolerate the place here and, and uh, those different trees. And then it's, it, it was like what Western junipers were a heartbreak. You know, I went and collected Western junipers in the Rocky mountains with Nick and, and I, I, th- I think that it's not good to let them freeze the first year. There's just not a long enough growing season in Minnesota for them to harden roots. And this is not, this is based on just listening to you and other people and watching what you're doing and the successes. But deep cold, they, they probably should be in a greenhouse here if you want to have um, and to extend their season a little bit and to wake them up in the spring with a little bit better situation than sticking them out on a bench when it's April and all of a sudden it's 10 degrees and things like that. So I had quite a few that died, you know, it was very, I felt horrible about it because they were beautiful trees and uh, I couldn't figure it out. Couldn't, I couldn't, I tried every, you know, I tried setting up misting and different things like that. But uh, part of it was, is back then, my knowledge of soils and stuff was limited as well. Now it's, it's pretty easy prescription. If you can get your hands on pumice, it seems like that's what you do. Yeah. You don't have to sweat it, put them in pumice. But that's not what the dogma was at the time. You were just kind of a crapshoot and you couldn't buy pumice I mean, you know, where would, you'd have to go out west to get it but anyway that's what led me away and I, i'm old enough now where i don't i don't need to go horning in on the western part of the world and do that i would go with but you know it's a beautiful exciting thing to do but i wouldn't bring trees home yeah someone else can take care of them is that how, yeah is that how you but i love in las vegas is that how it was cultivating bonsai in las vegas yeah, trying to force something to happen that wasn't supposed to happen there. <laughs> There's definitely some yeah, of that. Yeah, no kidding. I can only imagine. 
Yeah, we're kind of brothers that way, I have a feeling. <laughs> Different brothers extremes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you Ira just because yeah. you guys have been talking so much. Hey, David, actually, that last part where you were um, kind of telling that story recap is, is, is starting to answer some of the questions that I had. It's like, what, what did it look like for you and Nick, you know, species-wise, quantity-wise of trees during that timeline? And, and it sounds like that's changed over time based on the you know, the different things that happen with the Western junipers or the Rockies or whatever, but what was that kind of like early time? And then what does it look like more, you know, nineties, two thousands and now? Oh yeah. Well, when I was younger, I was, I had big eyes and ambitious to get lots of trees, but I, I don't really want more than I, I mean, I got too many trees as it is, especially if you have something like a white cedar and, and it just takes so much time just to take care of them. But, uh, but at the time I was just so infatuated with bonsai and possessing bonsai and the great optimism of bonsai. And in a certain way, you get beat down. I got beat down, but also I realized that I could have the trees I have. I'm very grateful or or I'm proud of what I did um, or what I accomplished with the trees that I got that were, in some cases, you know, they might have been stumpy little things and now they're much more advanced, you know, classic uh, before and after things. But most of the great, the really good trees I have that I like um, are large trees that, or tree or white cedars that that were gangly and then i bring them back and tighten them up but yeah i don't want a hundred more bonsai trees at this point that's for sure so what did you have back then i mean when you were first getting going and we all have that i think uh can relate to what it feels like to have that obsession of like oh, i just need one more i need one more yeah. so where you have you know hundreds, uh, yeah. hundreds of trees hundred trees um I think when I was younger, I never had more than 80 trees usually, but um, I was always digging up big things and, and those were sometimes discouraging, but it, I, I don't know. I've never reflected like this back in time. Right now I have a, you know, I don't know, 120 trees or something, but there's a lot of scrappy trees in there that, um, they're bonsai, but they're in, not fully developed or they need work or whatever. But And there's quite a few of them that are more finished. But um, one thing I've definitely gotten into that seems kind of odd is I do bonsai in the winter in Minnesota when it's 20 below zero. And I wire the larch trees in the winter. So I go out to my little studio and I go into my storage facility, which is called the, the Crypt of Doom. And I go and <laughs> picked out, I go pick out some larch trees and bring them into my little area and, and I wire them. And are these the trees that you, I, were, that you posted a lot, like this last several months, yeah. you had a good, pretty good run on Instagram of a lot of different larches that you posted. Are those, is that, yeah. is that from the Crypt of Doom? Is that what that's that's all work from the crypt so what you're seeing is me going out there 
taking large trees out, wiring them. And then I just take my phone and take a picture and post it on Instagram. And uh, they're all dormant and they're, you know, I just go back and get them and they're in on the ground or in, they're in a facility that's super insulated. Um, the walls are, uh, they're like 10 inches thick in blown insulation in there and the roof's blown in and it's a, like a pole shed. And uh, it has a window, but it isn't lit really in there. And then I allow it to, I regulate the cold, but I also put ice in there because one of the big problems we have is occasionally in March, it'll get 80 degrees and then everything starts waking up. And that's a formula for, at least here, that's a, a big formula for problems wow. that you can't fix unless you can drag trees in and out. So I put ice in there. I freeze hundreds and hundreds of buckets of ice, special buckets that you can pop them out. And I put the ice in there with the trees and the ice stays in there. It doesn't melt until June because it's so well insulated. So does that, and help, then I, that helps regulate the temperature and can, and slows yeah, the climb. Keeps it from getting hot. Yeah. Keeps them. It's a big moisture source source in there, but um, it, it also, it keeps it uh, in the spring from getting too warm in there. Cause that's the problem for me. Spring, early spring, when you have them in a building, if you can, you know, winter them outside. A lot of guy, a lot of people, winter bones, hardy bonsai like I have outside. But um, then there's other issues. If you have really good trees, you don't, you know, here you you'd have to build a wire enclosure to keep all the vermin from eating them. What are what are so these vermin? This is what, what I what are, what are these vermin? I mean, what what's going on here? This is the crypt this is of new doom. To me. The I vermin. Know. This is a lot of obstacles well, to overcome. I, yeah. You, Nick wrote, a, Nick wrote a story about the year of the vole, and he was attacked by voles. And I think he had 46 really good apple bonsai. I remember Walter Paul said, this is the best apple tree in the whole world. And, <laughs> That's a direct and quote. That luckily wasn't one, but the, the voles got into his collection that was in um, cold frame, outdoor cold frames, and they just ate them. They just ate them like lunch, and they'll do the same thing here. And they'll like say, rodents? people will go, oh, voles are are like, yeah, small rodents, mm -hmm. like gopher style, mouse style things that eat everything. <laughs> they and they the come out of it like I'm a little. <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll eat your bones like collection. If it's a stored on the ground outside so we had can. rabbits rabbits where i lived in yeah. uh, henderson right by las vegas the rabbits were out of control yep they eat your up. trees yeah when we when we first oh, yeah. moved from the place in vegas to the uh the house of henderson where, where you where you've been uh that little arroyo behind the house uh -huh. all the rabbits would come in there and they would just chomp they just chomp the deciduous they chomp away unbelievable it's tough I mean, everywhere you go it's just there's always something fighting you what are, we, what are we doing? It's what deer, are we all doing bonsai for? The deer, the deer will mow down ev everything that's oh, yeah. not that's not needled, and even sometimes the yep. needled stuff. It's a freaking nightmare. This year we had deer eat blue spruce and red pine, just 
decimate them because they were starving. Yeah. And they never eat blue spruce and they, they ate them as much as they could. So it's a big deal, you know, ah, frustrating, but that crypt never have I had a mouse in it and I watch it real carefully. So, and I make sure it gets cold, you know, it gets, I get it in there. I'll let it get down to 15 or so. Um, and get very everything's frozen solid in there so if i can't freeze it then i don't keep it and uh so what does yeah. that look like the larch i and think then, we're all pretty familiar that that larch is kind of the a number one species for for you but what what else do you have in there that is that cold hardy in your collection of 100 120 trees my favorite my favorite my favorite well, tree here is eastern I, white cedar you have an east, eastern white cedar that blows yeah. my mind yeah yeah, I have some eastern white cedars, and um, but I don't have any. It, it, I don't have another place that I put them, like warmer or something. I quit that; it was too difficult. So there, there's things that get foisted off on me. I'll have now. I've got a few Japanese maples or whatever that are in plastic pots and things like that that maybe are tender, but. For the most part, it's white cedar, larch, um, uh, you know, just miscellaneous things, pines, um, some junipers. I had a really nice collection of blue rug junipers that were collected from the wild. And then all of a sudden, and it's happened in the last, mostly in the last 10 years, and I think it's climate change, but diseases are coming up here. I never saw a, a mite or weird diseases until just the last 10 years. It's just really phenomenal. But juniper blight, never had juniper blight, never saw juniper blight. But when the juniper blight hit my blue rugs, it killed all of them, except for a few wimpy ones. It was so heartbreaking. They were really beautiful medium-sized arthritic ancient looking things and uh i didn't know what it was and nobody i consulted with different people and um they got blight and then because their roots were so full when they started slowing down then they got phomopsis after that because of the soil was so clogged up with juniper roots and I didn't really fully understand how thick blue rug junipers can put down roots in a pot that uh, I'm, I, I can only imagine they do in the Pacific Northwest. So they like blankets. They're just layers of cottony roots. And if those crash and it becomes dysfunctional, then it's just like a compost pile. And, and that's so all these blue rug junipers that I had was... I probably had 12 major, major pieces that I collected and that were really good. And now they're in the stump pile, but juniper blight combined with Phomophis did me in. And I just wasn't, I didn't know what juniper blight looked like, but now it's ubiquitous. I got people in Duluth that I'm friends with are struggling with losing tree juniper trees due to juniper blight. Yeah. That, you, never was a thing 
do you do you feel it's interesting because there's some sadness in your bonsai practice. There's loss in this in no, this I'm thing. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you don't have to apologize. But I, I mean, uh, this has really been a, a realization that I have had over the past twenty four months at Mariah. I mean, we have experienced any yeah. num- any number of oddities and you know unfortunate events, heat, cold human damage i mean you name it we've been we've been through it in the past you know 18 24 months to some degree i it's almost like i i moved to the pacific northwest with the notion that i could control things that things would be easier than colorado it's a temperate, cl- it's a temperate climate <laughs> it's supposed to be temperate this place is supposed to be chill like laid back like bonsai grow and you don't have to do anything and it's not the way that it looks is it ira no, it does not look that way. <laughs> Ira came from Las no, Vegas. And I, and I bet you that climate change probably influences that too. Oh man. It it's been we're we're talking one of the wettest, coldest springs on record after last year setting a un, an unbelievable heat record. It's like it's tough for the trees to get their feet back underneath them, you know? And I, and I would imagine yeah. that you, that you feel that pretty consistently where you're at. Cause it is erratic where you're at. It's very rugged where you're at. Well, I don't have as, you know, I don't know. I don't have all these different species and, you know, world-class bonsai propped up on benches surrounding me either, but, but, uh, the, it, yeah, it's, it's tough. And then, the learning curve is a is a horrible thing because you learn by failure especially when you're alone that's the drawback of of not having a community around you and in a certain way you're working at such a high level that you're you know you're alone in some ways i mean who has what you have nobody you you've done what the dream in many ways but you also have this giant responsibility (laughs) and so last year when it got hot and things suffered and roots died and now this spring it's cold and and you got roots in the pot doing things and you know you have a whole new learning experience of how to deal with it and then and i i i get a little worn out from making adjustments but I look at the trees that I enjoy. It's like I took a picture of a honeysuckle, a modest species, but I've had it for a long time and it's beautiful every spring. And I walked out in the garden before I sat down and, re- you know, I was just kind of waiting for you guys and I was resting. But I had walked out in the garden and took a picture of it and it was like, it's very affirming. And And that was a collected tree that somebody threw off the you know that that was in their garden and threw it off a cliff basically and it landed down below and uh i was with nick and we were canoeing and it was you know a place where rich people are up on the cliff and and they look out onto the giant lake and they'd throw their trash over the edge and and there was a honeysuckle just kind of in the rocks and obviously it was a something from somebody's yard but anyway um <laughs> blooms Obviously. and it's nice and i thought that was a metaphor yeah. <laughs> yeah. well anyway that was a real story up a, a honeysuckle somebody th- hucked off a cliff that's i i thought that was a metaphor <laughs> i was really waiting for it <laughs> but it's beautiful and, and it blooms every year and and 
I've dealt with a lot of honeysuckles and I tell you that species can be a pain because they get sick and they're funny and, and I've learned a lot about them, but this one is genetically superior, I think is the thing. And, and I, I enjoy it every year hmm. or, or seeing the cousiatums come to bloom is nice or seeing the pines candle. Although I have a bunch of pines that have these weird uh, crumb holes candles i need to confer with you on that sometime or somebody figure out why those things happen but yeah but it, it, it's affirming way. and I, what's that it's to send some pictures my way i'd love to take i bet's aerified mites oh, but... oh, oh. yeah mm. but yeah that it's affirming but the um the failures are i feel responsible sometimes and yeah, but white cedars, they're pretty indestructible. That's for sure. Yeah, I can't comment on what your display situation looks like, but I think I guess I'd beg to differ that the world class tree comment. It seems like oh, some of the sure. some of the trees that I've seen of yours, David, they're pretty stunning. They would they would they would definitely command attention uh above and beyond you know, a majority of the pieces at Mariah. I think again, like I really I really started finding my i i found my large aesthetic uh i found your your approach to be preferable you know in terms of what you what you achieve with your larches the eastern white cedar i don't know how to describe it except for it's on a it's on a stone and it's got a big long kind of semi-cascading branch that runs along the root system kind of down yep. at an angle i mean I, you called it something not gerwald or the witch yeah, yeah it was the witch tree yeah 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 which is named after a, a famous witch tree that grows on Lake Superior. It's an actual tree that was named by the Indian, the natives up there, and and it, it's ancient thing clinging to the rocks. But but yeah, I called it the witch tree. It's pretty cool. It's amazing. The, the slab I made. Yeah, it, it is, and it's very healthy still. And um, is it big? Is it a big composition? They, I can't pick it up, but that's, it's grown, it's planted on a stone and then the stone is planted on a slab, you know? So the stone itself is what makes it heavy because the stone is probably big as five, six footballs, you know, and it's, or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty heavy. So I have to, it's one of the trees I have to have. It's a two person tree though. Awesome. It's, it's okay. Awesome. I'm slow. I don't have too many giant. I don't have giant projects anymore. But why? Why? That's uh, as big as I want to go. Does it motivate you at all to show your work? Because like seeing your work in the national show or something like that, I would think it would have a profound impact on people. I mean, I, I have total respect for people doing bonsai for their own personal reasons. There's no judgment at all. Right. But I just wonder, like, do you ever consider that? Because I mean, a tree like that, it really has the ability to change people's perspective. Yeah. And you're so kind. I mean, you should be kicking my ass saying, crust, you know, listen to me. <laughs> you should do that. That would elevate bonsai in your state, you know, which is in a quagmire half the time or has been, as far as I'm concerned, in kind of fixated on the old school way of doing bonsai, which uh, is uninspiring in many ways, at least to me it is. So it would help inspire 
young uh, practitioners. You're right. But as you know, the level of effort to be in a show is a lot. And, and it's, I would be showing in Minneapolis and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. I should do that. I feel like I, and that, I I feel like I want to drive up to your house and pick those trees up and take them to Rochester so the world can actually see your work because because I do find it to be that, that good. That would be a Herculean task. <laughs> I did enjoy well, what driving out fall? to the Artisans yeah. Cup. It's not outside. It's not outside <laughs> yeah, the realm of possibility, Mister Crust. <laughs> well. I think we do pick, yeah. pick up somebody's trees from Minnesota, didn't we? That's a yeah. Thing. yeah, we do. Listen, there's no, there's really no limitations. I'm glad you came to the Artisans Cup, and again, this is this is like you're just reinforcing like that piece really stimulated a tremendous amount it of discussion. Did. It it was so much, it was so much fun. I mean, kudos goes to you and and Mr. Hagedorn though, because I can only imagine when you looked at the photos of that one what the hell is this? And then you had the audacity to go, okay, let's do it. Let's put this in, you know? And it's like, I felt it was such a great experience for me and it was expensive to, we, I brought my wife and we drove out there and, and, you know, stayed in a nice motel and all that. But it it was the funnest thing I think I'd, I'd ever done. It was so much fun. And then in the, in your cool display at Artisan, I could, back up and lean against the wall in the dark and listen to people when they walked by the tree, which just happened to be next to, you know, big blue, I think you call them the the award-winning tree that, so, so you have this juxtaposition of um, two different things. And, and it was, I mean, for, for dinking around with trees all your life and, and having, a friend of Nick Lenz, who's kind of notorious for, for out of the box things. It, it was, it was very gratifying. And, and I really appreciate that opportunity that, that you gave me. It was- I'm glad you included it. And there were so many people that said so many positive things and so few people that were negative. I mean, there was a few people that were like, obviously, and that's cool, but I felt it was, balanced enough where um it's like i was taking the tree out of there carrying this vacuum cleaner across the parking lot and i was accosted by some strange person oh thank you so much for putting that tree in the show and i said well it wasn't up to me but i did apply and uh they they were just gushing in how this is what it's about you know that it'll help it'll help people change their views on these things it, and and I think I think it's worthwhile because to to me it isn't about having a weird tree in a weird pot, even so it was. It's more about authenticity and reaching out into your own environment and and it's and that's what it's about. I mean I look I see the authenticity in your handwork when I look at your trees in you know on the on the website and I'm, I'm looking at trees. I'm going, that's amazing work. And it's, you're doing it. You're doing it. And if my little thing can help, you know, that happen, that's, that's very gratifying to me. Very gratifying. Seminal moment. I, I'm very amazed by your work. 
Thank you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered by that. I think it was a seminal moment in, in Bonsai. You know, I think the Artisan's Cup in general was a game changer. Uh, you know, yep. and, and I think it was a game changer, not on some like, oh, the art, like pre artisans cup, post artisans cup. No, I just think it expanded people's awareness of like another approach, yep. another perspective, something that's possible that hasn't been done yet. But, but like, there are a handful of pieces in that exhibition that felt like they really broke new ground. And, and your larch was, was the one. I, it was the one. And I, and you know what I think it did? I think the experience what? of that and the interpretation that, you know, and I don't know how many people, I'm sure if I were more tech savvy, I could deduce from the Artisans Cup website that's still up and all of the judges' critiques are free if you want to go, if anybody wants listen. to go listen to it. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, it's it's phenomenal. But like, I don't know how many people listen to Dave DeGroote's uh, critique of President Hoover, but if you haven't, you're, you, you're missing one of the great connections of somebody who appreciates bonsai, somebody who appreciates bonsai as an art form, assessing bo- the medium of bonsai handled as art. And, and it really, it changed everything for me. Changed everything for me. There's a few pivotal moments in my life post-apprenticeship where I can say these things were formative and that was one of them. It was, it was I'm, I'm so glad cool. that you submitted. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And it was David cool. Crust's work too. You know, there was nobody saying that's Nick Lenz's yep. work or anything like that. And that's, that's kind of where it's like, do you want to be associated with Nick? Do you do you find it valuable to be delineated as a as an independent artist? Like, how does that work? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I don't care so much if what people say or do, but you know, I'm, my buddy Nick, who's gone now. Um, he just thought it was the greatest thing when he, when this happened and I explained all the different things that happened, but he knows me and I'm just doing the same thing he was doing. I was going, Hey, look at the line on this thing and look at the cool story. It's could, could tell. And I had the large, you know, semi pre-trained and then you, you grow something for a long time in something like that and it starts looking oh i you know i it it was a natural thing i it's it's funny because i i i'm a poet you know for on the side and if you study poetry and when people talk about poetry or poets talk about poetry they'll talk about um being trying you know being kitschy or trying to contrive something that's overly surprising or unnatural and not authentic at all and you have to be careful and they'll go on and on and on for chapters about that but this but uh at the same token it's bonsai is poetry to me and there's this one poet named yuji yakma something i could never pronounce his last name and he described it as in distilled insinuation. And that sounds like something you'd say, distilled insinuation. You're, and, but, you know. I'm not that poetic. <laughs> that's Mariah. It, but, that's you know, beautiful. That, that's what poetry, he's describing it. But I was just reading a book about poetry and 
And everything about the thing, when they were giving examples, and I'm going, well, that's just bonsai. They were talking about details, how in poetry sometimes details, verbal details, explaining the fine detail, and then all of a sudden you you give a detail that's kind of off the wall, and it really grabs people's attention. And it, And I was reading this, and I'm going, well, this really speaks to kind of like the Dan Robinson focal point view but it also speaks to some of the things that Nick would do to grab attention or to play on it, even in subtle ways, just a little oddball branch. And it's, and you do it all the time. And, and I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just by, at this point, I suppose it's just intuitive, but it gives depth and flavor to things when it just isn't a homogeneous green mass. I mean, God, it's so funny how many people try to just make things look like bonsai. And it and it speaks to a form that doesn't exist in it's it's a mental. It's all formulated in your head. Or at least for me it is. You know, if you get too much focused on what's expected, there it loses all its authenticity. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Wow. You kind of have to dabble in the intuitive. And and Walter will talk about it too. Sometimes he'll close his eyes and just jumble things up, or at least he he explained it to me once. And and then look at what he's done. You know, and it's like Nick thought was the most ridiculous conversation. (laughs) He said, well, what the hell? Nobody does that. But (laughs) people, you know, you handle enough trees and maybe you do. I don't know. Anyway, you've used the word uh, authentic or authenticity a couple of times. And you said that about um, the tree that you, the large Mr. Hoover, you had at the artisan's cup. So what, what did, what about that was authentic to you for for your style of, of work or what, what did that, what does that mean to you? Well, in a certain way, I, I, it hurts me when I think of like people will, look at it and go, oh, that's somebody trying to do pop art or something. And I I really don't, that's not what I was doing. I never intended for that to be shown to anybody. Mm. That was what I thought was cool. I thought it looked cool. I thought it worked and, and, uh, and I'll do that with other things. And now that I'm more comfortable, I can let those epiphanies happen. I can see, well, this is a cool tree. And it's like authenticity is I studied in the last few years, I've studied the kind of the word and cause it's, it's easy to, to talk about and, and go, but if it's forced, it's not authenticity, you know, but part of it is the colloquial view of bonsai where bonsai is coming from where you are not a, a cultural vestige from you know a different place and time and if you can shake that out of your head and let some part of your life show through in your art and that's why it's easy for poets to do it there it's almost always an experience but really bad poets are not doing that you know they're speaking to bigger things but authenticity 
I think you feel it. You can, t- you know, when you, s- I can see bonsai and I'm, I'm not an aficionado, but I can tell you, I can see a good, bo- when, I, when there's something really cool, I'm not afraid to, to point it out and go, this is really kick ass. And it might be something real simple and it's hard to put your thumb on. And I know um, Ryan knows exactly what I'm talking about. And you can see trees that are canned, that, that are, they really were kind of a moat, a template's been really applied heavily to a tree. And I, I know everyone that's been influenced by what they see, by Japanese bonsai, by other people's bonsai, by symmetry and nature, all kinds of different things were influenced by. And I think you really have to push yourself to start giving credence to the importance of the art part and and don't just let it happen and be mundane you know always be analyzing those things i think that if i think that's good i think that technique sometimes becomes a way of preening your trees by using technique and you'll learn all this technique and even applied horticulture and you're still missing it because there's no authenticity or there's no um, gut connection with the tree at all. Or picking the tree is another thing. I go, you know, I'll look at what people collect and I go, hmm. And then I often wonder what they walked past because there was a day, I mean, 40 years ago, when people talked about collecting or if you'd go collecting with, people that were doing those things, they only picked really bonsai looking bonsai bushes. I, it, and, but Nick would always pick the weirdo, you know, the, anything <laughs> that had that, you know, and, and it wasn't like he was trying to be, he just goes, isn't that amazing? Look yeah, at this. Yeah. And he'd sit you down look. on the ground and yeah. look, yeah, look at this convoluted thing. But then other people would go, oh, that's much too, I mean, you can't, that, look at, there's an inverse taper or, you know, there'd be these rules and, and Nick would just go, none of that, Matt, you know, look at this, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if only we could capture this, you know, and, and bring this back and covet it. And, and then he would. Man, what a profound thing to say that you never intended that to be seen. And so it wasn't like you were trying for it to be anything. You weren't trying to make a statement. In fact, the authenticity of it is that was just for you and you chose to share that with everybody. That's really, that's, uh, yeah, that, that is something that is something very special that I don't think, uh, probably many people would have ever considered about that composition and it's in the impact that it had That, that, that changes a lot. Yeah. It existed long before. I mean, when the Artisan Cup came on um, the horizon, I just looked at what would be interesting and worthwhile from my perspective and took a chance, you know, and and it was well-organized and I was able to send the pictures and stuff. But yeah, that had existed for years before the Artisan's Cup. It wasn't like 
prepared for it or something. Yeah. And, and it's, and I enjoy it. And, uh, and it's not hard to take care of. It's not, I mean, you have to be careful because it's in a very small amount of soil and you have to transplant it kind of in an odd way, but it's not rocket science. Yeah. And uh, it's been in that, it's still in the same position, everything. I've never been removed. I transplant it inside of the, you know, I invert the vacuum cleaner and and, uh, transplant it through the drainage area. Interesting, kind of like uh, Nick, there's some orb, those Nick orb did. pots that Nick used to make. You had to kind of handle them in a really yeah. unique way like that. Yeah, like his, he did one called the potato juniper. I don't, I'm probably getting it wrong, but one of his uh, students got it and I helped him transplant it. But you have to transplant, it's so hard, but it only is every 10 years. So if you're careful the last time we transplanted it we're going through the top around the ever-growing trunk so there's less and less room in this ceramic orb and we're digging around with uh, sticks and and cutting and you know doing the best we can and all of a sudden an entire family of deer mice come rolling out over our arms and jump off the bench and run in the woods (laughs) I mean, it was like eight of them. I couldn't believe how many <laughs> mice were inside of this pot. Like a clown car? Like you wouldn't <laughs> have known. <laughs> how did they Wait, get that many clowns? Where did they come from? Where did they keep coming exactly. from? <laughs> it's hilarious. The other but, thing, the other thing yeah, you that. said that really that I that I want to I want to touch on before uh, before you telling more stories like that is is the fact that technique can actually be an impediment. That's a this is a really this is a really oh, yeah. interesting thing. I mean, you know, Mr. Kimura, uh, some of his apprentices have talked about this fact as they've gotten clients that have a different perspective of the bonsai approach. Certainly, you know, over techniquing things is something I've become more aware of and and cognizant of you know, at, at, at Mirai. And this is something that, that, uh, Todd Schlafer and I have talked a lot about that Mark Nolander's, you know, brought to my attention as a traveling professional where he said, you know, you kind of have a well of creativity and when you tap that well and it's gone, then it's, it's tough to get it back and you kind of fall onto less than original bonsai design as your, as your backbone. And Todd's obviously traveled a lot and he and I constantly, sort of talk with each other about how we sustain our creativity and stuff in the in the bonsai practice but even just the focus on the craft can pull you away from the intuition and some trees you know that had that intuition applied if you're not continuing to perpetuate intuition when you approach that tree you can very easily pull highly inspired trees back into a very mundane yeah. appearance and position and that is such a delicate knife's edge to stand on you know, of the technical capacity and this and this and this potential tipping scale of um, you know of of undoing the the feeling and the the thought with the execution of technique over time. I I, I find this to be fascinating. Dan Robinson touched on his management of it by the way that he manages the foliar mass to control root growth and his concept of stasis. 
you know, because youth and, right. and vigor and bonsai, and you talked about Nick trying to cultivate larch that were less than strong, but you suffer the consequences in their durability when compromised or presented with a really, a disease, uh, an abnormal cold spell, etc. Those, tr- those are the trees that succumb mm-hmm. generally. So then it's like you have this youth to have this power and durability, but it compromises the aesthetic and and now you're walking this knife's edge of potentially undoing and techniquing your way through bonsai. What a challenging three-dimensional model to try and wrap your mind around and master. <laughs> like it, 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 it disturbs me every day. Every day that I walk through the garden. I can imagine. I've undone things that I can't do again, you know, and I do things that I hope I don't undo someday. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's more common, though, and I know you see it. You go to these collections that are being curated, and they're accepting trees, you know, that are special trees, and then they become blasé'd um, from volunteer, you know, from lack of whatever. I don't even fully understand, maybe, but the it isn't hard. I mean, I I would say a good portion of probably a majority of the trees that Nick created um, were released um, to various gardens or to uh, individuals and then diminished and, you know, more and more. And I, I suppose when you sell a high level piece, there's a, unless you have a continuing, you know, touching that tree continuously, it's, it's probably going to, be less inspiring it's going to lose that flavor there's a letting go there's a letting go i feel like that happens with gardens too you know you have like this oh yeah you have this spirit of the proprietor you have this relationship between a garden and an individual and when that person's gone it's it's almost impossible you know it's almost impossible to continue that on in the same spirit it's a it's a george nakashima table you know, and, and furniture making style. It's a, <clears throat> it's a degree of architecture when the principle is, is no longer a part of the creation process. It's just, there is like a really fantastic indelible mark that an individual makes on the output, the outcome of a creative endeavor that, that can't be duplicated. It's really interesting. Uh, and I think about that a lot. You think about that. I never got to see Nick's collection uh, or his garden or any aspect of his bonsai practice. And I regret that. I really do regret that because I, I always wanted to. I think I came along at a time where I was maybe a little bit uh, too late, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah, he, his, he was at his, you know, the tra- trajectory of his creative career. Um, at one time, his garden was very full of uh, just kind of unexpected masterpieces i i i you know we could talk for a long time about the the commodity that bonsai practitioners like yourself a pro what it is is it's energy and those that do great works have an incredible amount of energy and then when they get older (laughs) it it starts to wane, you know, and things go wrong and, and you, you don't have as much energy. So your career or your, your work changes over time. And 
but but when the 90s even in the 2000s his garden was was fantastic and he sold many many pieces and and got rid of lots of very interesting work but he had lots of like communist juniper i mean who in the world could i wished i would have uh, photographed all those great communist junipers because they're all gone because he would sell them or get them out and, and they were unmaintainable no one could do it and he grew them in very fine soil and and people would get they just couldn't manage the they just die and he would have have them for years and years and years mm. and big and beautiful you know i helped him collect many of them and uh i have no i don't know i'd asked him many times what's the key and there, there's something to be said about genetics because some of the trees were collected from certain places had long lives and others didn't uh-huh. and it seemed i saw that he did too you know this kind of consistency but uh it was his hand he just knew how to and and he was a consummate water or because he used fine soil he had water in non not the way modern bonsai it's taken care of you know and um i did that for a long time up but i'm using much more coarser soils these days but um the the a lot of the trees I cultivate soils aren't as big a deal in larch and white cedars. You can probably grow them in, you know, peat and ground up marble. I don't know. You know, they grow in anything. <laughs> Whereas junipers are, you know, he commented that once he started to use uh, perlite, which is nothing but pumice, basically, in my view, uh, he saw an improve improvement in being able to manage their health. Mm-hmm. But he had, I I remember coming to his garden and I was flabbergasted. There was like 50 major communist junipers and they just stayed in the garden. They developed them and I don't know where they went. Some of them went to Montreal. Some of them went to other gardens, but probably sold them. That, and, that, but then it changed over time. That energy discussion that you just brought up is, uh, I, that's so, yeah. that's, that's really, yeah, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, I, I, I feel it. I feel energy, you know, shifts now. I watched Mr. Kimura's energy <laughs> shift a lot and a narrative arc formed with those different degrees of energy. And I think it's like, yeah. you don't really understand that until you don't have the same energy or that energy shifts or something. And then you're <laughs> like, oh shit, this is, uh oh. I better yeah. take advantage of this while I got it, because. Uh, but but it sounds like he had a big collection. From what you're, I mean, you're saying he got he had yeah. eighty five or forty five apples mowed down by vermin, and he had fifty yeah. communist junipers. And I I know like one of the most impactful compositions Nick had in my mind was one of his blue rug junipers that I believe is in the Kenneth collection now. Uh, that just looked like a it looked like a decrepit ancient Sierra juniper on the granite in Yosemite. I mean, it yeah. it's, it was like one of the most accurate to scale with the blue rug juniper foliage, accurate depictions of a alpine juniper that I have ever seen ever anywhere. Um, and he he was influenced because he spent time in Yosemite in his when he was in graduate school or right after graduate school. He was he worked out there and he was really 
aware of the Sierra, of the Sierra juniper look mm-hmm. the, of real Western junipers, how they looked. And we'd talk about it and he would draw pictures and he'd say, it's not into, you know, you have to go look at them to really understand it. And so when he went through his, that phase where he was making those junipers, he literally made those from little cuttings and then he'd grow them in this garden. And I remember seeing him and he would grow them really hard and fast. And you know how fast a blue rug will grow and he'd put them in the garden and then he would dig them out, put them in a nursery pot, put them back in the garden and let the roots escape. And he'd water them every day. And it was, because his lifestyle allowed for continuous attention he was at home and he did work um not his whole career but a big portion of his career he did colonial restoration masonry and woodwork somewhat but he he always prioritized bonsai i mean it was it was what he did it was it was everything so, so he would check his trees multiple times a day, whereas the average person just can't, but you know, you know, as a own garden owner, you know, it's just, it's a big deal just yeah. being there present. Yeah. That, that, that's actually the backbone of it. Like just showing up being here. Yep. There's always, so he was there, you know, <laughs> and he had a lot of trees, but yes, he had a big collection of trees and a lot of developmental trees um, for decades and uh, a long, long history of doing this. Um, When we did the, or when the retrospective was done in Washington, DC, I was involved with the curator or not the curator, but the, um, they actually had a a lady named Ked that uh, she's like a museum specialist put this thing together she wasn't a bonsai person she was an an art person Mm -hmm. and she did a great job but she made storyboards and researched his she she claimed to have read every single thing he ever wrote which is a lot of stuff but he'd been doing bonsai since the cows came home just way back the old school guys and dory fronning and and uh Jack Billet and all these, um, and they're all gone now. And, uh, but when I, he, he wasn't just, I don't know, I'm, I'm wandering off my thing, but he, he had, a, had a lot of trees, went through a lot of trees, gave a lot of trees away to students and to other people and uh, sold and gifted and, uh, you know, everywhere they just disappear. But he would develop them fully before he would. And then he was a very good ceramicist. And that was probably one of the most defining characteristics about Nick. Is unlike you and I, uh, he could make the pot that was necessary for the tree. So his proportions, when you look at his work that was been photographed, you look at the proportions, you go, the pot is perfectly proportioned. There's absolutely no awkwardness size and everything because he was able to make the he'd make four or five pots just for that tree and then get it zeroed in just perfect it's very good with that proportion they always were a little shallower than what was popular but um most of his species 
kind of were lending towards that anyway. But uh, I, I was I was always blown away. OG and his yeah. pots OG. just the form of his pots were. I just really love them and the shapes. I remember looking around at the time when they're back in the day in the potters. You had Japanese and Chinese pots, but the low, the people making pots here were making boat pots. They just they really well weren't well proportioned in my view. Those there was a few people that were kind of making Japanese style pots where it was like a formula, and they were doing okay. But those that were just making pottery pots, their forms were way off. Took them years. The ones that sustained um, and are around today that have good reputations, the beginnings were not pretty. <laughs> they were not the greatest pots. And, uh, but now people's are much more refined, I think. Well, and the fact that he was doing this at a time where nobody else was doing it and he was his own self-critiquing system yeah. and he established his own standard, which setting a standard as high as he set without any reference, even even access to good images of bonsai in Japan would not have provided Nick what he executed in his composition. So to some degree, there's no. like a, a, a savant level of of creativity that went into his his pieces. And I, I, I am so regretful to say this, David, but I, I have got to press pause. I've got to go pick up my son, but I feel like we're just starting the conversation. And I, and I, I, sure. I, I can't apologize enough. Would you be willing to pick this back up and do this again? Yeah, this isn't, this is just fun to me. I get to talk to the big dogs. So <laughs> well, yeah. this is fun for me because th this is, you know, my inspiration uh, upon which, you know, uh, trees at Mirai immediately well, are crazy. influenced by. But, like, it's history, too. It's history that needs to be known. It is. And people and, and what, don't know it's crazy how big because of Nick Lins was. They don't know how brilliant Nick Lins yeah. was, you know? Yeah. And some of the early stuff that he wrote and professed and lived by you do as well. The, the impetus that I've read about when you returned from your studies in Japan, your, your intent, at least what you had written was to do American bonsai. Yeah. And, and in an authentic way and, and not, you didn't have to pound that. That was your feeling. Yeah. You didn't have to prove it to anybody but yourself. And he was in the same thing. He was like, no, I want this to be authentic. And, and yet he never, and they were, there was like a magazine article or a newspaper article written in the early eighties. And it said the same thing. He just, he made fun of it even sometimes, <laughs> but I know that there's also a lot of respect. I don't, I'm not, I know it's complex, but anyway, I know you got to go and, Ugh, thank and, you for uh, taking the time. I, I would like to do this sooner than later because his 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 ceramic body of work and, and this component of it, his writing, uh, your poetry and and sort of like these themes continue to kind of run mm -hmm. through this conversation, but we haven't looked at any of them eye to eye. And I would really like to come back 
and do that. So Ira will work with you. But again, I really appreciate you being willing to sit down. I knew uh, I, I knew I would be inspired by our conversation, but but uh, uh, there, there's so much more here that we need to discuss. So let, let's do that again. David Crust, okay, Crust. Go find him crust, on Instagram. Crust. Get it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Very good. All right, David, you have a good rest of your evening, and we will uh, talk again soon. Thanks, David. Okay. Good night. Awesome. Thank you.